The Smiths with a track titled The Boy with a Thorn in His Side from the album The Queen is Dead. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop as I travel time, space and genre. This week's special guest is going to be Ian McNabb from The Icicle Works. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into three, four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight. But before we get down to some quality chat, I think we should have some music. This is The Icicle Works and your favourite and mine, yes, this is, this is titled Love is a Wonderful Colour.
What Not To Like That was The Icicle Works with the track titled Love Is A Wonderful Colour and that came out in on their 1983 album which was also titled The Icicle Works. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, us, we love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show or and... He says, you can find the archives of this show on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and also Mixcloud. I decided that, yes, I should archive them all and they go back several years. So any indie band that you've ever been interested in, you could probably find it there. But this week's special guest is going to be Ian McNabb, who I have, I do believe has got solo uh, dates coming out. Um, what he started this year from January right through to July. And also he's got four dates as the Icicle Works, which are going to be in May. So if you want to know any more information about those, you can find them on his Facebook page. But... I have got a lot of chat and um, not a huge amount of time. So I think we'll play another track and then we'll have the first part of my interview with Ian. This is going to be Birds Fly. You knew I was going to play that, didn't you? Love 
Indeed, pop perfection there. That is the Icicle Works with a track titled Birds Fly in brackets, Whisper to a Scream. And that also came from their 1983 album titled Icicle Works or The Icicle Works. Anyway, David Eastall, C86 Show. This week's special guest is Ian McNabb from the band and also now a prolific solo artist. So we're going to find out that and a lot more. But anyway, this is the first part of the interview with Ian, where I was talking about the interesting and um, excitable Liverpool scene. And this was Ian's reply. Ian, tell us about the Liverpool scene. There was a hell of a lot of Liverpool bands, not just bands. Yes. I mean, it was ridiculous at one point. I remember when uh, when we were doing the first album um, and Love is a Wonderful Colour was in the charts. ITN got in touch and said, we're trying to find somebody to comment on this. Because uh, in next week's chart, 16 of the top 20 are all Liverpool acts. Right. And it was like, wow. And it it was just, you know, because all of those Liverpool bands, Frankie, Us, Bunny Men, uh, Mighty War, um, China Crisis, OMD, you know, uh, Lotus Eaters. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and I think there was a couple of other things there, as well. and I think McCartney had something in the top twenty. Right. So it was like it was it was just ridiculous for a while. It was like it was all happening again, you know, like the Mersey Beat scene. Yes. And you it had, all came back. And you had this famous club, didn't you, that we've grown to sort of um, know about and feel kind of envious of, Eric's, which seemed to be a, a, a the sort of centre, the vortex of everything that was happening. Was that a was that a kind of area club that you were also part of? Well, I was a little bit young for that. Um, all the people that used to go to Eric's are all, you know, two years older than me, which sounds ridiculous now, but of course, when you you know, 18 or 16, that's like a lifetime. So I just missed all of that. Eric's closed in about 1980, was it? Maybe it was even before that. I think it was about 79, actually. And I didn't really start going out until a bit after that to to gigs in town and stuff. Yes. And it was called Brady's by then, and we actually played there in, I think it was 1981. And... Everybody told me it was a, a sort of shallow um, version of Eric's, and it didn't last very long. Right. But the Eric scene certainly gave birth to a, a lot of the, the new music, you know. Yes. Thanks have... to Roger Eagle, really. Yeah. Okay. Because having sort of watched far too many sort of documentaries on music, there is this kind of there was that term scene and that band, Big in Japan gang from Liverpool, that seemed to yeah. sort of. Um, yeah, create. I mean, even though they never sort of did anything kind of recording-wise. Yeah, well, big in Japan was uh, Jane Casey, Ian Brody, Budgie, who went on to play with Susie and the Banshees. Um, Bill Drummond, of course, who went on to manage um, Echo and the Bunny Men and the Teardrop Explodes, and then um, and then he became a big K-L-F. dance act. What were yes. they called? KLF. KLF, that's right, yeah. Yes. Um, and then you had Holly yeah, Johnson so, as well. And Holly Johnson, of course, who, who went on to be the biggest star of the lot, yeah. But I remember... I just messaged Holly, actually, because he just posted something on Facebook. The Guardian have just published the top five band 
records of all time, and they're number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Still. God, that's that's going something. Because cause I always remember Jane Casey saying that, because um, it was a lot of, I don't know, it was one of those documentaries about the indie scene, and she mentioned that everybody on stage was kind of wearing their neurosis on you know on stage basically you know everybody had a bit of a a tricky childhood and sort of got up and um i suppose the only career you know apart from sort of woodwork or cooking was going to be be on stage and be a performer and um so that seemed to sort of encourage a certain kind of mad creativity yeah well a, a lot of it was to do with the fact that um you know, being from Liverpool in the 70s or at any time after the Beatles, people just used to go, oh, the Beatles, you know, because I was in a couple of bands and, you know, we used to send tapes off to London. We just used to put a tape in an envelope and write London on it and send <laughs> it. Um, and it was always like, oh, you know, the, Liverpool's the Beatles, you can't get past that. So when the punk stuff all happened and the new wave and that, you know, it really was a baptism by fire for Liverpool because there was these acts coming up and they, they didn't sound anything like the Beatles, you know. They were they cast the net a lot wider. They were into stuff like Bowie and Velvet Underground and a, a lot of Liverpool bands were really into The Doors yes. and Scott Walker and, you know, basically stuff that was as far away from the Beatles as you could get. Um and that's basically what levelled everything and gave us a chance to, to build it up and start again, you know. Was it the case, though, you might have been more kind of curious and sort of had more rivalry with Manchester than worrying about sort of the Fab Four from the 60s? Because there was Tony Wilson, uh, Tony Wilson and all the kind of Joy Division and then Joy Division, then New Order. Um, and actually, the Smiths hadn't appeared then, had they? So, but there was certainly, you know, from that other Cherry Red, Red compilation that came out. Yeah, you know, there was I a never huge... really thought about it like that. I mean, I know there's always been this supposed rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester, but it was all very good natured. You know, Liverpool and Manchester got on a lot better than Liverpool and Liverpool. <laughs> Because in in Liverpool, everybody would go around sort of slagging each other off and we were all sort of, nobody spoke to each other. We weren't, you know, it's like, oh, so you must, I think a lot of people had the idea that we all hung around together, you know. Yes. All of us Liverpool musicians, but we didn't. Whereas in Manchester, they seem to have much more of a um, a brotherhood and a, you know, a community and they all sort of supported each other. Yes. But, yeah. um we just got on with it. Yes. I mean, it, when I look back on it now, I used to think it took us so long to get somewhere. But but it didn't really. I mean, we, the Icicle Works, formed in about, properly in about 1981, we started getting it together. And by 1983, we had a major deal. But I, I just remember thinking it was taking an, an eternity for us to to get anywhere it's mad isn't it when you look back yes well i <clears throat> haven't done this show for a while i sort of you know there's there's a kind of five-year narrative what i've found with a lot of these kind of bands the indie scene i suppose is that you know they they get together they make a bit of a sound that that's quite interesting over that two years where they're sort of practicing and, and doing something then record something that john peel picks up and thinks oh this is quite you know kind of 
quirky and interesting and he gives it a play and that gives them the John Peel session and that kind of then bounces on to, you know, playing more dates around the country rather than just in front of their friends, family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see. And then the first album. So things are going well, the third, fourth year. And it's often when they're on that second album period. And if anybody ever seems to do America, they come back kind of crippled. So you had a couple of years also kind of creating a sound that was going to be a bit better than just something that sounded a bit like a pub rock band yeah well you had to think about it a lot because you know we everything when i listened to the first high school works album i just think well we were really trying very hard to be different we were you know we wouldn't just do something and think oh that's a good song let's record it it'd be like no we can't do it like that because we've got to do something that hasn't been done before or, you know, there was a hell of a lot of work went into the arrangements and thinking about what we were singing about. And you couldn't have love songs. You couldn't have just basic sort of, you know, moon in June, hallmark type lyrics. They had to, they had to be enigmatic and uh, mysterious. Yes. Um, and that's what we were all doing, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a, a tr- you know, when I think about it, we, I mean, we used to rehearse every week, um, every Sunday, and we'd, we'd go and do little cabaret gigs to pay for the rehearsal. And we did that for 18 months without doing any gigs. And, you know, then I, I'd, sometimes I'd go in there and we'd rehearse and I'd think, well, we haven't really got enough good songs, and I'd feel bad about it, and then I'd try really hard and hopefully go in the following week and you'd get, you know, maybe one or two decent songs. Yes. And um, a tremendous amount of work went went into it, which I don't know how much of that goes on these days with new artists. And that's going to be the first part of my interview with Ian McNabb from the Icicle Works. And as I said earlier, and hopefully you are paying attention, I will test you at the end. Um, you can find out more about his current activities if you go to his Facebook page, be a friend. And I think he has also got a, uh, a website, which I will try and find the address. But anyway, I think we should have some more music, then we'll have some more quality chat. This is going to be um, Seven Horses that's taken from their 1985 album, their second album, which was titled A Small Price of a Bicycle. I think it was A, not The Small Price of a Bicycle. I'll check that out as well. Anyway, music now. <laughs>
subway Some await with bated breath For something better stuff indeed that is seven horses by the icicle works this is david Eastall. this is the second part of my interview with ian mcnab talking about life love poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff well actually this is where i had spoken about the early 80s and the unemployment situation and people a lot of musicians claiming unemployment benefit and also the enterprise allowance scheme it wasn't just about having a great time and being one of the blitz kids and appearing on the face oh no it was about being on the dole and the importance of those years when you didn't have much else to do apart from play music and hang out and get a bit drunk anyway ian tell us about the importance of unemployment now yeah, I mean, there wasn't, you know, it was pretty destitute in the late 70s, early 80s, especially in Liverpool. Um, but that's very fertile ground for creativity. And even though, you know, you're saying there wasn't much, I mean, there was record companies. And if you if you came through and you were good enough, you could get a, a good record deal and you'd get money and, and they'd get behind you, which is exactly what happened to us. Yes. And that doesn't seem to happen anymore, you know. I, I mean, young people now who, are, who feel the urge to, to maybe put a band together, I feel sorry for them because I don't know how you do it anymore. And, and you know, where's the point when you start making money or at least when you get some money so you can pay your bills and you don't have to go to work? At what point does, does that start happening? 
Yes. Well, I think because with, with a lot of people, they were sort of, I think they were still signed on. They had a bit of a grey area, didn't they? They were still signed on thinking, actually, we're going to be on top of the pop scene. And, I'll, you know, our record is in kind of the top ten. I better stop, you know, doing that. But but then, you know, they, yeah. did, they did get some money. And I think that whole admin world is also a bit tricky for a lot of people. But you hit, you know, I yeah. mean, a bit like one of those bands, you hit sort of a huge success very early on, though, didn't you, with, you know, your 1983 single which kind of hit the top 15 you know which was quite incredible yeah well we put a, an independent single out called nirvana and then what you do in those days is you try and get a few gigs and we got a, a john peel session which was amazing really because everybody used to listen to john peel um certainly bands did anyway and um and once you got one of those, there was a lot of people listening. All the A&R people used to listen to that. And then you'd move up a little bit and you'd start getting a few more people at gigs and then publishers and record companies might have their interest peaked. And then you'd try and get a, a nice review in, in the Enemy or Sounds or Melody Maker, which everybody read in those days. Yes. You know, that was the thing. You'd make a splash. If you got something, if you stuck the flag in a in a in a hill somewhere, it would actually mean something, um, you know, because nobody was on the internet. Yes. So people used to watch the TV, they used to listen to the radio, and they used to read the papers. Whereas now, if you're in the papers or on TV, not that there's anything to be on anymore apart from Jules Holland, uh, or if you're on the radio... There's just not that many people taking any notice of it because they're on the internet looking for and listening to what they want to. Yes. So it was really important, and, and it was just a gradual climb up, and 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 that's how it went. Well, it's interesting. Uh, nowadays, it all seems to be about record companies. What's left of them will sign you if you've got, you know, 50,000 followers on Twitter or something. Because well, there was yes, strange time. It is very strange, but I hadn't appreciated that thing, the role of the gatekeeper. And John Peel obviously probably didn't realise this himself at the time, I don't think. But, you know, this kind of the gatekeeper that, you know, if you got there and possibly Kid Jensen, you were pretty well made, whereas now it's not like that. And the, and the NME, I think, had a circulation of 100,000 a week, and then there was Melody Maker and Sounds. And so just one little snippet, and that's what, you know... I because, mean, the thing is, the NME was so big in those days that if you got a bad review, you didn't go out for two months hoping <laughs> people had forgotten about it. Yes, this that is That was true. the reach of it, you know. It was quite frightening, um, and the, But there was a path in front of you to climb. And um, well, the other thing that I hadn't appreciated was that every city or town had a, a kind of a, in, an indie club night somewhere scattered, like Norwich had one, Bristol, yeah. Glasgow. So, yeah. you know, a band would get played on John Peel, and then you'd probably get a phone call during the week saying, Oh, you know, do you want to come and play? And, and you know, those early days, people didn't have a tour, they were just going to get in the van, drive down to Norwich, do the gig, go back the next That's day, right? Yeah, you know, but again, it kind of you, you were guaranteed about 100 to 200 people you know, who were strangers coming to see you because they just heard the John Peel show. So that network was such a kind of holistic and organic thing that, you know, you think, God, that was genius. Absolutely. I mean, we'd go, you know, after we'd had um, a John Peel session or a decent review or something, you'd go and play a, a place in Stoke and yet you didn't even have a record out. And, you know, there'd be 150 people there because... Mm. 
people used to, and also the other thing, don't forget, it was, it was, it cost nothing to go out in those days. You know, it's like you'd get into gigs for 75p and, you know, it, I think it was less than a pound a pint, you know. So it, it was easy to go out, but these days, of course, it's expensive as soon as you go over the door. Yes. And, and gig tickets to see bands, that, you know, even sort of bands that have only just started off are like 10, 15 quid, you know. Well, it's, and it, all, the venues have been, all the venues have been taken over by, you know, O2. So you go in and it's £4.50 for a pint of lager. So not as many people go out. No. <clears throat> well, all the skids played in, in Norwich a couple of weeks ago, and it was 30 quid, and I thought, well, you'd kind of want to, um, I don't know. <laughs> 30 quid has seemed a lot of money, actually. <coughs> well, it's an expensive night out if there's two of you going, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it was quite interesting. In those days, for me, you know, it was cheaper to go out than put the heating on and stay at home and feel miserable. So you, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was. Cause, cause, I know that one. Because, you know, when you look at those posters, you had three bands for like two quid, and you thought, God, you know... It was much. It was better to go out and keep warm, because so. How did the band then progress from that early kind of you know success, which obviously no one is prepared for? And in those days, you know, apart from we had Sheena Easton on some sort of program, we didn't have the X Factor in those days, did we? But she. No, I remember that. That was the first time something like that happened, wasn't it? Sheena Easton. That was like a very early version of the X Factor, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was. But apart from what was it called? That program, the big something. I think it had Esther Ransom pre- presenting it, I think, but I'm really hazy. I should have Googled that before I made that point, actually. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. Well, I, I know what you're talking about. But I just remember well, she, she came from Scotland. I don't think it's fair to say we weren't prepared for it because we, we'd seen how it works and stuff. I mean, from putting Birds Fly Out on Situation 2, which was a subsidiary of Beggar's Banquet, they sort of... They pay what well, basically the deal was we'll pay for you to record a single properly, and if something happens, then you know we might give you a deal for an album deal, and that's exactly what happened. The first single that came out on a major label well, it was an indie label, but it was through majors was Birds Fly Whisper to a Scream, and that really sort of took off. And it's and especially we were at the right time because. There was a lot going on in America because MTV had just started. So they were just hungry for, for, for new music and new videos because they had 24 hours a day to fill where they had to play videos. So it, it was just, it, the timing was right. And then, you know, we signed the deal. We did the album in um, the winter of 83 and it came out in March of 84. And we were over in America before it even came out. Right. So we we were thrown right into it, and uh, it was it was very exciting. And, yes. You know, and how did you, and how did you cope with America? Because like every band, not even ninety percent, every band have said we went to America and then we came home and split up. <laughs> it just did us in. So did you manage to sort of survive that that process? Yeah, I mean it was. You know, it's all you want, isn't it, when you're dreaming of success and stuff and being a rock and roll star to, to go to America because that's where all the music's from. Yes. And, um, you know, that that's, it means a lot to English artists. But lots of English artists don't even get to go over there anymore. Um, so it was a, 
it was a shock, really, but it wasn't that much of a shock because, you know, all we ever watched was TV shows from America, so we kind of knew what was going on. Um, I, I just remember thinking, well, this is it, you know, this is this is what we were aiming for. You know, we did American Bandstand with um, Dick Clark and a few other shows, and, you know, we got a big review in Rolling Stone. And, you know, we we hadn't even sold a record, and we got picked up from the airport in the limo. And it was like, well, wow, this is it, you know. And, and the, the biggest shock for all of us was that, um, oh, wow, this is what we've always dreamed of. And it's it's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> And that's going to be the second part of my interview with Ian McNabb from the Icicle Works. And I did just find out what the programme was called that Sheena Easton was on, because I know you've all been wondering. I'm sure you have. Anyway, it was big time, and I do believe that was um, running from... Well, actually, I'll just Google it here. It was run, They did 15 episodes running from 1976 to 1980, quality television. Anyway, this is David Easel. This is the C86 show and this is going to be another track by the Icicle Works if you like the Icicle Works fill your boots it's you just hit gold if you don't then well you should anyway this is a John Peel so this is taken from a John Peel session recorded August 1984 uh, produced by Barry Andrews I thought you'd like to know that anyway this is Hollow Horse <laughs>
There you go. That is the Icicle Works and a track titled Mission Bells. And I probably said Hollow Horse at the beginning, but then I was just confused, discombobulated, in fact. But anyway, I corrected that. So just calm down just in case you started to hyperventilate saying he's got it wrong. Anyway, this is David Eastall's C86 show. Um, and if you want to contact us without me sounding too desperate, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. And also the show has been archived and you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with e third part of my interview with Ian McNabb where we were talking about America and the, just the size and the logistics of touring such a big place and this was his answer. Ian, tell us more. You know, that was the biggest shock for me personally. I was like the first week we were over there, it was dead excited and then you go into the middle and there's a lot of middle in America. Yes. And you can just be there forever and you're just playing the same songs every night and everywhere you go looks pretty much the same. And it's like, oh, God, actually, this, this is a bit boring. That was the biggest shock, really. There's also people but, uh, saying they having to sort of drive miles and miles to go on a radio station to say, hi, we're from the Icicle Works and we're just saying hi. And then that's it. And then they get back in the van and drive another yeah, six the, hours. The distances were a shock. Because, you know, being European or English, British, you know, you you sort of you think two hours is a long drive. But in America, like between shows, it's like 13, 14 hour drives. And that's when we started having to learn how to live on buses. And that's uh, that's an interesting way of life, you know. Yes. But, but, when uh, you... but it's, it's all part of the part of the thing. It is part of the trip, really? but but you're but, yeah. but but how did you cope with the second album? Because obviously the first one had been kind of so well received, and you know you hit sort of chart success, and then the second. Well, that was a disaster, really, because the first album got loads of money behind it. I've been trying to work out ever since what happened, because we made so many inroads with that album, and we worked really hard, and we toured all the time. And we supported people, you know, we supported the Pretenders. We supported David Gilmore for about two months. Um, and then we came back and then we went off to do another album and we did the album. And the American record company rejected it outright. This is Clive Davis. Yes. And since then I've spoken to a few people who said, oh, you signed with the wrong label there. He was just always out for the, you know, the quick hit. He didn't really get behind artists for long periods of time. It's like they, they had a bit of a blunderbuss theory. They'd shoot it at the wall and whatever stuck. Yes. They'd stay with and what, what fell off, they just dropped. And they dropped us. And it really hurt us. So the second album didn't really... Well, it wasn't domestically released in America. And then we got a deal with RCA for the third one and stuff like Understanding Jane and Evangeline got lots of college radio play. But we didn't go over and tour because they weren't prepared to put the money up. And um, it just kind of fell apart, really, which was a, a shame. Yes. And also, because, mm. because the other thing that I noticed, because I put Indy down as the years of 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. I mean, that's not a great theory, but it's the best I can do. Mm. And, um, and mm. because one thing that happened is that when the Smiths finished, 
There was definitely a feel that that a lot of those bands that, that I've interviewed, they felt tired. They thought, actually, we've kind of gone as far as we can. We've done two albums, done the John Peel show. We might have done a bit of a tour of America. Yeah. And, and, then, and then the dancing, you know, they could feel that kind of suddenly people were like, oh, look, we've got this dancey stuff going on. And then a few years later, you had this sort of grunge scene from Seattle. And so a few people, I think, just said, oh, God, no one cares anymore. And, and we're not particularly getting on as a, as a functioning sort of body of people either. You know? Yeah, that is one aspect of it. When you spend so much time with the same people and, um, you know, the hour and a half on stage, whatever, is always, you know, the high point of the day. But you've got a, a lot of hours in the day to fill and you're bumping into each other on the bus. And don't forget, you know, you've... You know, I always think about people say, oh, God, you know, how miserable the Beatles look in the last few pictures that were taken of them. But when you think about it, it's like those guys have been together since 1958. <laughs> Every day. Yes. Gigs, right. recording sessions, traveling, interviews, making uh, films. Um, Every day. Every day. And you think, no wonder that... You get fed up with it. You know, one of the things that you notice is when you're on a bus with somebody, when you, as soon as you get on the bus and it's all fine and everybody's got their bunks and everybody sort of establishes their own little bit of space and then, you know, a week goes by and everything's still okay and then all of a sudden the way that the drummer sort of scratches his nose really starts getting on your nerves after two weeks. And after three weeks, you just want to hit him every time he does it. And, it, you know, that's that's what it's like when you spend so much time with people. Yes. So I can understand why bands break up. That's why I'm a solo artist. Well, it's interesting. And the I... other thing you have to do is you have to you have to compromise and have a vote. You know, <laughs> should we do this? Hands up. Well, I don't want to do that. And then you've got somebody whinging because, you know, one of the things that I, I always got, was that if you write the songs, you're obviously going to make more money than the others. Yes. And it, it, that's okay at the beginning. But then, you know, when things start getting a little bit testy and you're still okay and they're struggling, that's animosity builds up and then you go into the rehearsal room and you're trying to rehearse and learn new songs and you can just feel a tension. And that's why bands struggle. Yes. The, the bands that survive that the best are the bands that split the publishing four ways. But even then, you're going to get the guy who's doing all the, the heavy lifting, getting annoyed that the others are getting as much money as they are. So it's you know it's difficult being a solo artist. It's easy. Yes. And Billy, you can never split up. This is true. I know Billy Bragg slightly got it right, didn't he, at the beginning there? But mm. but but actually, it's interesting. Yeah. You talk about dynamics and scratching. It's like when people get partners and you have to like their girlfriends. That is kind of quite tricky because you think, oh my god. Well, that's another thing. As soon as <laughs> women come into the situation, forget it. You know, it's like, and then it's like it, then it, bec it becomes you know the band and the band's wives. Yes, it is Spinal Tap. Actually, I just remember it, it is Spinal Tap. You know, definitely. <laughs> so to quote. You know, Janine turns up and uh, and Janine turns up in every band, trust me. <laughs> yes, I could imagine that would be excellent. So did you, in, in the words of Jim Morrison, have a moment where you said this is the end? Because some people, they do sit down and, and I remember a guy from James, just when they were at the top of their success, they you know he just said, 
around the hotel, why don't we just kind of quit because we all hate each other? And they said, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy with that. And they did and had about 10 years before they realised that they better get something else. So they reformed. So did you ever have... No, we didn't really do that. I remember I, around about 87, I was starting to get a bit fed up with it. Um, and I sort of indicated to our manager that I might not want to be doing the band for much longer because I was getting fed up with certain aspects of it. Um, but then I changed my mind because we we went in um, we went into um, Pete Townsend Studio in Richmond and we did the the Blind album and it came out really great and I got all excited about that because I thought maybe we had something else to offer. So I got behind it 100%. But then what happened was there was sort of influences. That, you know, the, the guy that was playing drums, his uh, his Yoko was sort of, uh, you know, complaining because there wasn't enough money and what have you, and blah, blah, blah. And then he sort, sort of decided that he didn't want to do it anymore. So he, he was actually the one that, that caused it to stop. And uh, I didn't just want to plough on with get another member because you know. So we stopped. So basically, that was '88. Yes. And then, and then I got out my beggars contract, and Muff Winwood at Sony offered me a deal, and but he wanted it to be the Icicle Works, not Ian McNabb. So I put a new band together. And then we put we put out one last album called Permanent Damage, and it had the might of um, Sony behind it. And it, just as that album came out was when all the the Manchester baggy Stone Roses Happy Mondays thing kicked in. So we were just completely out of time, you know, out of step. So so then they dropped us. So that that was the end, really, of the Icicle Works name. A sad a sad moment. Anyway. That is the third part of my interview with Ian. And before we have any more, I think we should play another track. This is taken, or this is the title track of the album Blind that came out in 1988, which is rather beautiful in a melancholic sort of groovy way. Black man on the ground 
That's a track titled Blind that came from the album, also titled Blind. This is David Esau, this is the C86 show, and this is going to be the last part of my interview with Ian McNabb, an extended 
urchin, well, I'm not going to read it anymore, so you can just listen to it and enjoy it. This is what we were talking about. Yes, band reunions. Ian, did it all come back together again? Take it away. Until, because <laughs> we love anniversaries. Until 2006, when it was the 25th anniversary. So, you know, promoters were offering us money to do gigs. And so I, I basically put together an, another band and called it the Icicle Works. Um, largely because the original members weren't bothered about getting back together. And so I go out now, I do my Ian McNabb shows, and then sometimes I play with another band called Cold Shoulder, Ian McNabb and Cold Shoulder, and I, I do the Icicle Works thing because <clears throat> it's all about the brand name, you know, and if people see Icicle Works on a poster, they go, oh, that means we're going to hear blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, so I still use the name, and, and we do play all of those songs that people want to hear, you know. Yes. And there seems to be a lot more affection for those songs now than there was <laughs> well, when we broke up. Yes. Well, it's, in, well, it's interesting because I noticed something else that happened in life, apart from, you know, your own health starts to decay and all that bit of malarkey. But 30 yeah. years seemed to be an interesting period of time because last year there was two books came out on the history of sort of fanzines from the 80s, not just punk, but fanzines from that indie world. And it's like, God, I'm sure that no one cared until about 30 years passed. And it was like, OK, stop throwing it in, you know, the recycling and landfill. You know, we could put that yeah. in a book and do it. And I think a lot yeah. of people like Cherry Red have been reissuing all these bands, haven't they, from sort of 30 plus years yeah. ago? Yeah. And suddenly, just it's like we thought, oh, I'm not that bothered. I didn't want to keep reliving the past. But then you play it again. And you think, actually, this is really good. And I've also discovered bands I missed the first time because actually we didn't have Spotify, YouTube. You know, you just thought, well, I've got enough yeah. indie bands in my life. I, I don't want any more. You know, I'm full up. And then you go yeah. back and think, actually, there's all these other ones on this Liverpool compilation or this Manchester compilation that I missed the first time around. You feel a bit guilty for sort of thinking, oh, I wasn't that bothered about Easter House the first time, but now I'm listening to it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the other thing that I find now is that a lot of bands that were sort of rammed down your throat in those days, it kind of, you know, whenever a band was getting the big sell, it always used to really put me off, you know. It was like when U2 were huge. I mean, I know they're still huge, but it was like just fucking every minute of every day they'd be on the radio and the TV and in the papers, and and you just, it'd put you off them. Yes, I know. When you go quiet, but then you can go, you go, and it's all there. Uh, and I can listen, sometimes I'll listen to you two now and go, oh, that's great. I know. Because it's not getting rammed down my throat, you know. And the same with a lot of other artists that maybe you weren't too bothered about at the time. You know, that's that's the great thing about the recording medium, the recorded medium, is that, you know, these things last forever and you can always go back and find them. Yes. And... Uh, and it's, all and it's all there. On, I, suppose. I, I, I just, you know, I remember thinking, you know, years ago, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could just have all of the music in the world just on a small device that you can carry around with you and listen to any of it whenever you want? Yes. And that's what we've got now. As much as I get annoyed with Spotify because they don't remunerate the artists enough, it is 
unbelievable to, to know that you're walking around and within a second you can listen to any track that's that's uploaded. It's, I know. It's marvellous, I think. It, it makes the Walkman feel quite chunky. <laughs> yeah. Chunky yeah. and a bit out of date. But yes, I, I agree. But I think with Spotify, I mean, you know, there is you know, probably hideous on the financial. But I suppose it's the way it's all been archived, though it's streamed. So it's not completely archived. But, you know, it is, it's kind of been preserved because a lot of those compilations that have come out have were you know there's kind of songs which which were on flexi discs at that time which were really impossible yeah. to get hold of and then they've found them and they've put them out and you think oh thank god someone's put them as a a digital format so hopefully that will get kind of a certain preservation order yeah <laughs> a bit you like know, Stonehenge. You, get people, you get people putting you know spotify compilations together of every john peel festive 50 and stuff like that i mean that's fantastic i know i'm so but grateful the only the only trouble is that you've got so much choice you tend to spend an hour deciding what to listen to and then by then you sort of fall asleep you know yes. because there is the temptation to just press a button you know and it, it's sort of i had to force myself to as a, a couple of new albums that i wanted to listen to that have come out in the past couple of weeks, and I had to sort of force myself to sit and listen to them all the way through, because nowadays, you know, there's so many distractions. Your phone will go, or if a track comes on and your mind's wandering, you'll fast forward it. Uh, you, do you know what I mean? That that whole thing of <clears throat> sitting down, putting on an album, dimming the lights, and uh, just getting into it. That that seems to be quite. A, a lost yes. art form. Well, I, yeah. I can remember, you know, the, the great investment of buying a vinyl record for three ninety nine, and then playing side one, you know, constantly. And even if it was a bit rubbish, you know, one had invested that time and money of saving. So you're going to play that record. But then there was that moment when you well, just... Well, you know, when we were teenagers, or, or even maybe slightly before that, it's like, you know, you could, if you were lucky, you could afford one album a week. I remember W.H. Smiths used to do this offer. And I can't remember how much it was, but it, you know they did a knockdown, so you could buy a vinyl album for. I can't. Do you know what? I can't even remember how much it was, but I could afford one a week, and sometimes I'd buy one, and bring it home and play it, and I didn't like it, but I wouldn't sort of throw it away or or stick it at the back of the pile. I I play it loads and loads and loads until I got into it. Yes, I done. And they're the albums that that last the longest. I know. You know, you'd really, you'd work on it. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting that, you know, you just about get side one and then there's that momentous moment where you had to turn it over for side two and then have to sort of go and learn the next six songs and you think, okay, I'm going in deep. I'm going for the last track on side yeah. two. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, the vinyl record was, uh, you know, well, David Hepworth's new book is called The Fabulous Creation and it's, it's how the vinyl album saved our lives because, you know, it was such an important thing to to my generation and generations before that. Because, you know, people, young people don't realise that we didn't have the internet. So entertainment had to be sought out. And, you know, on a budget, obviously. And so you'd you'd buy an album, you'd buy a book, you know, you'd go to the pictures or, you know, and we didn't, you know, we didn't really go out drinking because it was expensive when you're, you know, young. 
And um, I've just contradicted myself there, haven't I? Uh, well, it, you know, you know, you know the point I'm making. Yes, I know. I mean, um, yes. Well, the one thing that I remember, it, it, and, and it was, and it was, you'd, you, you know, you'd go into your room and you'd put a record on, and there was nothing else going on. Because you know, now people listen to music, and if they're listening to music, that you know, within thirty seconds they've picked up the phone and they're looking at the phone. I know. And I do it myself, I and I have to stop myself from doing it. It's like, whoa, just enjoy this, enjoy this moment. You know, it's that instant sort of gratification thing that we've all got now, and and that thing of on social media, you, you get like a little dopamine hit every time somebody likes one of your posts. <laughs> Or this one of your true. tweets, or you get retweeted, or do you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like we just keep keep needing little bits of self gratification, which kind of you know. Remember when you used to get a, on a train and stare out the window for an hour? I know that doesn't happen anymore, does no. it? No, we we you know we either sort of listen to I don't know a podcast, watching Netflix, or sort of you know looking at the newspaper. Yeah, or... you know, as soon as you get on a train. You plug your phone in or your iPad or whatever it is, or you've got your earphones in, and you just, it's like, you know, yeah, you, you know the point I'm making. It's true. The one, the other thing that sort of caught people out, which I, I sort of realised, I don't know how you coped, was dealing with the admin and the publishing and then the ownership of the music. How did you navigate that particular world? How do you mean? Well, did you, you know, because some people I've interviewed, um, actually quite a lot, that didn't particularly go well, and they hadn't understood what they were signing away, you know, on sort of whether... Oh, no, we didn't know what we were signing either, but, but and the thing is that you get a lawyer in, and the lawyers worked with the record company before, so all the people at the record companies know the lawyers. You know, it'd always be like, oh, who's your lawyer? Oh, Christ, they've got him. This is going to be difficult. Whereas if you had a lawyer, you know, a, a certified music business lawyer that everybody else used then you were okay, but they all worked together. You know, we basically signed away everything. We got a big advance, <clears throat> which isn't that big when you split it three or four or five ways and you pay your tax, etc. But, um, the, you know, I specifically remember, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood signed the worst record deal ever because no one else had signed them. And it's like, okay, so what do you do? Do you not sign it? and carry on struggling or do you sign it and get a shot at the big time well you know of course you sign it because it, and you think well we'll worry about that afterwards yeah and um uh, you know because you haven't really got much choice unless you're so super hot that you've got every record company in town chasing you but that, you know that happens very rarely most bands have two or three labels that are interested yes and did and, you? And you'll, you know, you'll sign anything to get off the dole, won't you? Well, this is true. Desperate times. So does does that mean yeah. you still don't own your, you know, the the music that you recorded or wrote and recorded? Oh no, I don't own. Uh, well, I own actually. I, I I don't own the Icicle Work stuff. Beggars Banquet still own that, but they pay me royalties on that, which is fine. Um, and there's three of my solo albums that I don't own but I own everything else right so it's all out there and it's all you know 
but the thing is that really it doesn't make that much difference anymore because you know because everything's streaming it's uh, you know it's like all that's been taken away we don't make an income from sale of records anymore i mean i my biggest income um comes off the publishing for um birds fly whisper to a scream because it was a hit in america and it keeps getting used in adverts and films and what have you so you know god i'm glad i wrote that one yes this is true and you know the other thing because i did an interview with dear old terence trent darby earlier in the year and um you know I mean, he, he, you know, he's quite, he's got some extreme sort of views on the world. I think it's probably Scientology, actually. Um, how, oh, do, I. how do you, how do you sort of, how did you cope with those kind of moments of fame and sort of what felt probably like a fortune at the time to sort of navigate through it to get through to a point where, you know, you, you, you're able to walk and talk without sort of scaring people? Um, good, basic you know, working class Liverpool upbringing. And, uh, you know, we knew what was what, even though we were young when it all happened for us. I mean, we weren't a particularly big band by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, when you've struggled for a long time, I think one of the problems with a lot of these young acts that, that kind of explode, if you like, now, is that it happens so quick, especially these X-factor people. It, it's like, you've, you know, you're working in a shop one day, and, you know, a lot of them have never even done gigs. I mean, you know, we've been carrying bloody flight cases up and down stairs for years. You know, it took me nine years to, uh, to, to, to get somewhere. You know, just one second. Chris? Chris, I'm just on the phone. I'll speak... Nice one, man. Cheers. Um, you know, it's like I I started in um, when I was like 15 in bands, and we were doing all the work in men's clubs and all that. And, you know, we'd carry our own gear and set it up and take it down and, you know, play in work in men's clubs where, you know, it really was the wheel tappers and shunters and, you know, it was a, it was trial by fire and, we you know, we, we worked hard. So when success came it was like wow okay i've worked for this whereas when it just lands on you and you haven't done anything to deserve it i think that's when you get into trouble because you do all of a sudden you go from hero you go from zero to hero and everybody you're in the papers and everybody's talking about you and you're eating in fancy restaurants and you know everybody wants to fuck you or kill you you know and um, and I think that that uh, that must be a terrible shock. This is true. So we were quite well prepared for it. And when you think about it, it's like they don't come much bigger than the Beatles. And look at, I mean, you know, there was no burnouts in that band. You know, nobody went crazy, although they nearly did at one point. And they all went through all the drug thing and being the biggest superstars in the world where they couldn't go anywhere without being recognised. And they came through pretty un- unscathed. Yes. You know, I think it's, I think it's down to, you know, because they worked really hard for a long time before they got anywhere, and they seriously came close to packing it in. Um, 
so I think you know grounding is kind of what what keeps you together. I mean, I, whenever I when I've run into people who who've suddenly become really famous really quickly, and they're quite young, they're usually pretty intolerable, you know. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I'd sort of I love watching my rock documentaries and seeing a few recently. There was there was one on Beatles, the Beatles, and then the Stones, and also Twisted Sister, bizarrely. And actually, all of them. The main thing is that they spent years touring and gigging before they had any yeah. sort of success. They really did have to work. And Twisted Sister, even yeah. though they were playing in huge yeah. venues, no one wanted to sign them, which was incredible. But eventually, they went, "Okay, we better sign you because you will sell millions," which is kind of weird. But anyway, it it you know they really had to work on that live setting so in a way when they did get that kind of success I think they'd had so many kind of hiccups and you know people signing them and then dropping dead and things like that and then thinking oh actually that's not going to work now so the disappointment made them sort of feel like oh thank god you know we're not going to blow it all in a in a you know a couple of months we'll we'll sort of savor it really so it's kind of interesting having to work hard when you're sort of young and probably not going to make it well it's your apprenticeship isn't it and I honestly believe if you, if you don't do that, if you don't have that ground grounding, yes, you know it's just going to blow your head off, isn't it? Well, it's also interesting because actually one of my favourite rock films, which I wish would be get get re, um, sort of reissued or something, was that uh, the one which starred uh, David Essex, "That'll Be the Day," which is still one of my favourite. Oh yeah, well that 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 was a big one for me. I went to see that when I was about thirteen. And it was like, and I'm sure a lot of other musicians did as well. And it was like, I want to do that, you know, even with all the bad stuff, because, you know, all the bad stuff happened in Stardust, didn't it? Yes, with, um, was it J.R. <laughs> Ewing? Was J.R. Ewing? Who was from, in Dallas? Larry was Hagman. He yeah, was the Larry one. Hagman played the manager. Oh, that was genius. And <laughs> I always remember the tagline to that film, which was on all the posters, because they were big films then. And uh, it said, "Show me a show me a boy who didn't want to be a rock and roll star. I'll show you a liar." <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And what would you just lastly? Are you getting everything you need here. I am fantastic. What just lastly? What Are you recording all this? I have re- just writing it down. No, I've recorded it. I'm not, I'm not that brilliant. Good I know. I know. I love modern technology. What would you say to an 18-year-old or your 18-year-old self starting out in in that kind of world of show business? That's a good one. <clears throat> Enjoy it more, basically, because uh, I think there was a lot of times when um, I was doing all the things that I'd always wanted to do and I was still a bit moody and, you know what I mean, still a bit not quite there. Whereas if something happens now, if something half decent happens now, I'm so grateful. I'm so appreciative, but I think that's to do with age, isn't it? It is. Actually, it's interesting. A lot of you people. Know, you, I was going to say a lot of people say you stop how, and with, smell the roses when you get older. Yes. I, you know, I, I just, I always think, yeah, if if I could go back and just say, just really enjoy it and let it seep in and, and really appreciate it because it might not last a long time, and it it doesn't, you know. And we and, and I remember thinking, well, when we had when we had the the hit, because we only had one hit single in the UK. When we had that, I just remember thinking, well, this is it now. 
everything I do now is going to go in the charts because we've had, we've done it. We've, we've had a hit. Yes. So that was a shock when, um, when that didn't happen. Because if you have one hit, then people think, well, that's it now, you set up for a career. But what happened with us, and certainly in the UK, was people bought the single or, and the album, but they didn't, re- you know, a lot of them didn't buy the band. Do yes. you know what I mean? I mean, there's still a lot of people out there who love Love is a Wonderful Colour, but they wouldn't listen to my stuff or come to a gig. They just love that song. And when it comes on the radio, they love it. It doesn't mean they're going to buy a ticket for me next gig. Are you, because we mentioned it at the beginning, kind of earlier, but, you know, I'm slightly amazed and impressed with you too, keeping the gig on the road. Not only Mm. the four of them, but just doing the business. And I suppose at the time, a bit like you said, you know, I didn't really want to know too much about you two because it was too mainstream mm. and it was kind of in your face. And, you know, you, you know, it was just like Bono was everywhere, like Phil Collins. But then suddenly you think, God, you guys... Well, I used to have a thing in the 80s whereby I'd try and get through a day without hearing Phil Collins. <laughs> and it really put me, really, really made me hate him. And yeah. now I love him because you don't hear him anymore. But now you can go back and go, you know, that was a really good record, that... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like if something's just in your face like that, it puts you off. Yes, I know. That's why John Peel was Sorry, so Sorry, what was your point? You were oh, yes, that. I was saying, oh, yes, the, the fact that you two did manage, the four of them, plus the, the admin and the management, and the fact that they were able to keep it rolling, which at the time, you know, you don't yeah, appreciate. but you that's think amazing. It is kind I of... I think that's, that's sheer professionalism and always wanting to be at the cutting edge and very ambitious... You know, I've never been particularly ambitious. Yes. I just wanted to make music. And hopefully, if enough people buy it, you can keep doing it. <clears throat> yes. I mean, the ultimate achievement to me is going to be able to get, and I'm nearly there, to get to 60 and say I've never done a day's work in my life. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Ian McNabb, one-time member of Icicle Works, who's still touring both as the band and also as a solo artist. So if you want to um, find him on Facebook, he'll be more than excited. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and uh, if you want to contact me, it's always good, as long as it's uh, positive and groovy. Go to at C86show and uh, it'll be delightful. And if it's not, then just hit delete and, I don't know, go and see your therapist and they'll sort it all out. And like I said earlier, um, if you want, you can um, find the archive of this particular show, which I've been doing now for over two years, where I get a special guest each week and talk for hours on end about life, love and poetry. And that's going to be the C86 show on that Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. What more do you want? Anyway, I'm going to leave you with one more song and then that's going to be it. So thank you for listening. This is going to be the Icicle Works, which I've probably tripped up a few times saying, and this is In the Dance, The Shaman. Okay, bye-bye.
Time. 